Welcome to the LB Performance Podcast with me, your host, Lawrence Bourne. Consider supporting us by rating, reviewing and subscribing to wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify and iTunes, as well as sharing the episodes through your social media. You can get in touch with us using our Instagram handle, which is performance underscore LB, or you can use our email address, which is coach at lbperformance.ie. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Lawrence here again. Welcome to another episode of the LB Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Fran Silver, a work colleague of my previous guest, Owen Clarkin, and the other lead strength and conditioning coach of the Arsenal women's football team. In this episode, we talk about the qualities Fran looks for in finding good quality research and how he implements this evidence from the research with the Arsenal squad. For the average coach, and Fran touches on this point during the episode, we talk about how podcasts and reading blogs and social media posts, although very helpful for appreciating the basics of a topic, only scratch the surface of those particular subjects. To gain a more in-depth knowledge of the topic in hand, looking into research papers is a key manner in which to do this. However, one point of research papers that I have been educated on recently is that not all research is deemed trustworthy, and we will go into some of these details during the episode. With the gyms having opened back up in the UK, and then in Ireland we'll be opening back up on June the 7th, Fran also gives some advice on how to approach returning back to the gym and returning back to full fitness. So we join the conversation where Fran speaks about his and Owen's role with the women's squad. Stick around for the end of the episode where I give an important announcement in regards to the podcast. Enjoy the chat with a very knowledgeable man and I'll chat to you guys on the other side. Actually, how is Owen getting on now that I ask? Doing well. I think he's looking forward to the season finishing, same as us all. But now he's doing great. He's excited for me to come on this. He kind of gave me some reassurances. <laughs> but now he's doing great. Like he's, uh, we kind of work off each other very well. So we're, we're mm. similar in a lot of ways, but we're very different in other ways. Like if you know of insights, personality profiles, like we're polar opposites. But I think that makes for a good partnership or a team. Otherwise, he's doing very well. And how do you guys find them working with each other on a daily basis? Like, what's, What would you bring to the team? What would Owen bring to the team then? He, I think he's a stronger leader in, in like the authoritarian, authoritarian sense. So he's like that kind of red personality where he's happy to speak his mind and ruffle feathers if he needs to. Whereas I'm probably more calm and more uh, like statistically minded. So I'll, I'll certainly take a lead on like the sports science element of what we do. Um, he's happy for me to sit in an office and crunch numbers if, and then he can go out and kind of communicate more with people. But we both do a little bit of everything. Like we, we, we have regular discussions where we kind of put ourselves into certain roles, but then say, let's make sure that we cross so we don't get too comfortable doing one thing or the other. And that, it works really well. He came in, basically, I, I took over from a guy that, that left as like an interim kind of lead. And then when he came in, the players wanted continuity. I'm like, oh, we, we don't want anyone else to come in. Like, we want you to be the lead or whatever. But I was actually secretly really happy for someone to come in and take the lead because I wanted to learn. I wanted to pick up a few bits and pieces from someone who'd been in the game for a bit longer. Mm. So yeah, it's it's been great. I've learned a lot from him. Hopefully he's learned a bit from me and we just, uh, yeah, I think, I think we bounce off each other quite well. We go for a few drinks. It's it's always good when you can socialize with your work buddies as well. Definitely agree. And even when I was speaking to him on last season's episode, he was very, he spoke very highly of you as well, but he painted you in the role of more of the, as you said, more of the statistician, more kind of the, the, the coach that does a bit more about the research, if you will. But to take it back to, I suppose, the very start with you then, Fran, where did you start from when it came to, you know, getting into the industry as such? We have to go back quite a long way. So I'm 38 now. I started off playing football. So I was, I did like a kind of college apprenticeship where I was playing for a, a non-league team who had a, like a college program attached to it. And part of that college program was like gym qualifications. Uh, so having bombed playing football I ended up just getting a job in a gym just to fill some time I think at the time I was applying for the police one of my good friends was a policeman and it seemed like his career was set out in front of him and I was a bit lost in terms of what I wanted to do for a career so I was like right I'll join the police same as him that fell through for whatever reason so I just carried on working in the gym and then I think just where I was fairly affable with with people in the gym people started asking me to train them and to be honest I had 
kind of no idea what I was doing beyond showing people how to set up a treadmill or, or press certain buttons. So I, I kind of winged it for a bit and just started to, to learn as I went, but always having this kind of foundation of just getting on well with the people I was training. And so that, that kind of just turned from like a, right, let's earn a little bit more money, just personal training to I was doing it for 10 years. I got to a stage in it where I had a, a good client base. I was, I was happy. I was comfortable, but I, I knew that it wasn't going to last for that much longer in terms of who wants to hire a, I don't want to sound rude, but like in, in certain gyms, it might be dominated by younger personal trainers. And so I had a, a particular client who was very fond of me and I was fond of him. And he said, what are you going to do with your life? Like you can't be a personal trainer forever. It's got no security. Uh, no, no one's going to want to hire a 50 year old personal trainer. He was the uh, head of Imperial Medical College in London. So he was very keen for me to get into academia because I'd kind of bombed out of A-levels and, and done this college course. He basically convinced me and persuaded me that doing a degree would be a good idea. So I went along to the open day, signed up for a strength and conditioning degree at uh, St. Mary's University in Twickenham. And then just, it kind of went from there. So I did my degree and then did a, uh, a master's at uh, St. Mary's. And a big part of the St. Mary's ethos is to get you into elite sporting environments or to any sporting environment and actually put some practical touch on what you're learning. So there's kind of internships offered uh, in lots of different sports, lots of different kind of places. So I did every internship I could. And it just happened that the, the, the last one was in football. So I did my master's placement in football and then just applied for the Arsenal role four years ago. And that, that takes us to here, really. Before you went into college, were you doing any research at all? I was, but I was doing it the wrong way. Think back to how I was when I was a PT. I was probably a lot of the things that I don't like now. Um, so I would read a blog post or, or listen to a podcast and think that I knew everything about a subject. I knew no context about kind of lots of different areas. So if, if we're talking about personal training, it'd be like the nutrition and like muscle building kind of route. Um, so I would think I knew everything when I actually knew very little at all. So it was only once I started going to uni and, and I learned how to read a research paper and where you find research papers, that I actually had my eyes open to all the different kind of contextual factors that make a, like a research paper good, bad or useful or whatever. So I kind of cringe when I think back to how I take any information I took in when I, when I was a PT, because I'd, I'd say things as gospel when they're absolute nonsense, basically, but I, I believed it. That was probably a good enough win for a lot of the clients. So if I believed it, they'd believe it, they'd do it and it, it worked. But yeah, looking back, it's, it is kind of cringeworthy. You're talking about self-development a good bit there as well. When you look back on what you've done in your position a few years ago in comparison to what you did now, and I think if it doesn't make you cringe, then you're not doing the job right technically because you always yeah. want that element of prog progression nearly so for you it's, it's great to hear where you've come from when it came to the research now then what kind of stuff are you looking at really um just kind of to paint the picture for the listeners and actually what's been highlighted an awful lot in my current master's degree the main issue with research is that it's re reading the good research and actually identifying the good research away from all the poor research that's out there and then identifying for example the most specific example i can give is say the populations within a study if the population is specifically about elite footballers, to, to keep it specific to this conversation, the same study won't apply to a group of just your average Joe Soap between the ages of such and such. So to go back to you then, what kind of factors and what's the more important factors that you look at when it comes to research? So that's quite a big question. I would start by just having a simple understanding of what research is and the levels of evidence that you can have in research. So there'll be plenty of, of stuff online that will kind of explain this in, in better depth than I would. If we start off with just the peer review process where if something's going to be published, it means that a group of academics has read your work and have kind of critiqued it and and offered questions before it's published. So peer review would be the first stop for me. Once something's peer reviewed, it's... Um, and it gets published, it's kind of available to look at on PubMed or wherever you're going to look for your, your literature. There's like a hierarchical model that would explain where something sits compared to another paper. So at the bottom of the model, you might have like an expert opinion that gets published in a journal, like an, an editor's opinion or something like that, which is just one person's opinion. And that person could be like fantastically successful as an academic or, or, or not, could hold biases that you agree with or not. And then you can work your way up through this hierarchy where you go through case studies, you go through randomized control trials, all the way up to something called a systematic review or like a meta-analysis, which is a, an amalgamation of lots and lots of research on the same topic. When you're looking at research, first of all, you just need to kind of understand what level of research it is. Because if it is just a like an opinion, an expert opinion, um, it maybe won't hold as much merit, say, as like a, a meta-analysis on, on a similar topic. It depends. There's so much context 
um, that I'm probably missing out by talking about this hierarchical model that um, I'm not doing it any justice whatsoever. Yeah, no, that's absolutely fine. Like, to be perfectly honest, I mean, it's just to give us a good idea of one, I suppose, your understanding of it, but then two, how it actually plays into your role as a strength and conditioning coach. As you said, when you're in the PT role, there's definitely an element, and I agree with you, having done PT myself personally, that if you really believe that this works, that your client then will pretty much believe you and then just go along with whatever you say. Or at least if you know what you're talking, you look like you know what you're talking about, that's one thing. But then to actually have the correct up-to-date research behind you is also the, the next point. And for you as, as a strength conditioning coach in a high-performance setup, can you give me a very specific example of, say, a research paper that you would have read and how you applied that research paper into your practice with the athletes? The, the caveats, what I'd say is typically research is behind elite sport. So typically sports teams won't publish their data and, and you won't get research out of sports teams. So when you're reading research, it's probably come from a student population uh, as, as participants and it's probably behind the curve maybe. So someone's come up with a hypothesis that's been tested or been used, say, for, for years in, a, in an elite environment, which no one's known about it. Having said that, if you are going to read a research paper, then you've just got to understand the context behind it, understand what flaws there might be or kind of how it won't fit in with your population and then decide whether you're going to go ahead with it so it's probably never as simple as just reading the paper and, and saying okay i'm going to apply this kind of carte blanche to everyone in, in the in the team um it's, it's just trying to find the nuance it's trying to kind of build context by reading as much as you can so, so yeah having one research paper and then kind of applying that as a global rule to everyone i don't think would really happen unless it was a paper that was a like a seminal paper that really describe like a fundamental principle behind something you're doing. You're never really given like a recipe of what to do. It's, it's about trial and error to a certain point, having the, the evidence lead your practice, but then also using your practice as a form of evidence. Awesome. Yeah, it's very good thinking, actually. I never thought about it that way. And then when you, when you mentioned the point about the research papers, and um, I suppose not a lot of teams giving away their data as such, do high-performance teams apply interventions into their own athletes without publicizing the data? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so like, every team will... I'd assume that every elite team, obviously I haven't worked at every single one, um, every team would have some kind of like closed loop system where if they're going to do something, a good practitioner would then figure out how to test whether that intervention is working or not and then use it or lose it, basically. That data would probably not see the light of day. One, because they don't want to give anyone else their competitive advantage. But two, just with, with a, a small population that's probably made up of quite specific individuals, whether or not you'd get the, the right kind of sample size or what kind of differences in the data to say it's a significant difference is, is unlikely. You'll get a lot of case studies coming out of some teams, especially if that team has a, a link with some researcher somewhere or a, a university somewhere. But generally, it's, it's not like you'd, you'd look it up and it says Manchester United have published this data. Here's how to train an athlete. It's, it doesn't get done. To go a bit more into research now before we leave the topic, what would be the main issues that you have found with research over the years as a coach? Again, I know it's a quite a generic question, so <laughs> make it as specific as you like. <laughs> well, well, as a coach, certainly just that research lag uh, that I, I spoke about in terms of if, if you're reading the even the latest papers and thinking they'll give you the edge you're probably wrong because someone else is probably already doing it already done it and um, like the saying is like fast practitioner slow research which basically means that those in academia will probably be working on a, a, a lot longer time scale compared to those working at the at the cold face so when you're in elite sport you can't set up a study with your athletes and say I want to see if this particular conditioning intervention works, but I'm not going to tell you if it's been successful or not for 12 months. You've kind of got to think on your feet and, and get results quick. Now, whether you're getting results through your intervention or through other things, whether it's placebo or something else, you never really find out. You just have to, as I say, have this closed loop system where you can you can test it as, as stringently as you can and then make decisions from there. Also, as I said, elite sports can be very secretive. So if, if I do something great with my team now, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to want to publish that and give all the other teams the secrets unless I had a personality where I wanted to, to push more into the research side of things. That's then compounded by working in female sport. There's very little research, although there is more nowadays. There's very little research with female elite populations when compared to male elite populations. That comes as an issue because if most of the research you read, especially in strength and conditioning, will be you such and such worked, they got this result, but then you look at the participants and it's kind of males between 18 and 24. And if it's like a strength or power intervention, you've kind of got to think that a female population may not respond the same way. And then, then you've just got to look out for bad science, really. So whether there's bias or just kind of methodological issues that just make the research not really applicable to your population. And so when I was at uni, I read a, a book called, well, Bad Science by Ben Goldacre, which is like a fantastic 
fantastically easy book to read, but it just shows like a lot of the pitfalls in in academia in terms of how people can present their data and set up studies to, to get the result they want. So I'm not necessarily necessarily saying that that happens in all research, but it's, it's certainly something you'd want to look out for, um, especially if there's a, like a hidden agenda, say, behind. Question that just after coming up in my mind there, and this is from a colleague of mine who I had on the podcast uh, at the start of the season. He had it up on his Twitter, actually, and it was a question that really interested me, and it was all based around data analysis and the usage of data uh, during your time in college. Now, in your time in St. Mary's, did you have much exposure to data analyses or stati- uh, statistics at all? In the undergraduate degree, we were taught how to use um, SBMM, like the statistical tool. We were kind of given a decision tree of what tests to do when, but not really taught anything of the other underpinning statistical theory relating to that tree. It was just, is your study this setup? Yes, no. Go to the next step. Is it this setup? Yes, no. And then you end up with a, a statistical test to run. Um, and then the, the program did it all for you. But with my master's, which was a master's in research, there was a, a whole module on statistics. So they attempted to teach us the <laughs> statistical theory. Good word. Very good word to use. <laughs> yeah, I, if I said that I'm if you ask me anything statistically based, I'm not going to be able to answer it very well. So honestly, I'd be the exact same as you. There's a, there's a, there's a module we're just after finishing up now in the, in college, and it's 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 very statistics heavy. There's a lot of research methods and data management involved with it. When the lecture was going on about statistics, it's very interesting because you're when you're in that particular role as a coach, uh, we obviously use you as an example of a strength and conditioning coach. There's a lot of methodologies and identifying of the data that you have to, I suppose, keep in mind and you have that step-by-step procedure involved. However, it's explaining it back to people is the toughest part of the job. And that's not something I want to even attempt today because <laughs> yeah. it's a whole, it's a whole course in itself and in, in college really. So to give it, to give it justice in a, a 45 minute podcast, it, it, it can't be done. In your opinion, do you think it's it should be more common to have statistics modules in college as an, at an undergraduate level? Um, I'd, I'd probably say yes. I, I was definitely interested to learn more about it, but I'm sure I'm in the minority um, when it comes to wanting to understand like the, the nuts and bolts of, of everything, really. I'm quite mathematical minded as well. So I was quite comfortable in, in learning about that. Whether it should or it shouldn't, it should, it should certainly be an option. I do think that a lot of people don't understand statistics and they kind of take what they see in a, whether it's a research paper or a blog post, or whatever, as just as gospel. Um, so if something is statistically significant, then that's it, that's the truth. Whereas if they understand what that means, it might change their view on things. A very simple example for me, because I'm not too keen on like presenting averages or means. I'd prefer to present some kind of like confidence interval. Um, mm. So without going too far down the stats route, it just it gives you a range of where the mean could sit if you kept running the, the test or kept running like whatever, whatever data you're collecting. If you just look at the mean, statistically you're saying that half your population sit above it, half sit below. In some instances, that's not really telling you anything. Whereas means and averages seem to be the, the go-to. So like what's what's the average distance in a game, for example? Uh, to, to know that you're just knowing the halfway mark. So it may not actually be useful, but that is the go-to stat. That's the one that everyone understands. Would it be you guys then that would actually break down all the data as soon as the game is up or as soon as training is up? Or would someone else do that for you and relay the information back to you guys? Yes, so that, that would be us. So we're, we're lucky to be associated with stat sports who um, like we have like match metrics, we'll have all the GPS data, we can collect that with the GPS units and then download it, analyze it ourselves. If one of us wasn't comfortable doing it, I'm sure we could find someone somewhere who could. But typically, if you're in a, an elite football environment or any kind of team-based environment, you need to know how to do it. You need to know how to analyze data if you're going to be in these kind of teams. Um, so like a big part of our uni course in the undergraduate was to, to be be comfortable with Excel, for example, um, to be comfortable with analyzing data and understand that if you're a, even if you're, you think you're going into be a strength and conditioning coach and be in the gym and teach people how to squat and Olympic lift, et cetera, there's certainly going to be a big element of the job, which is handling data and making sure that it's, it's clean in inverted commas and that you can trust it and that you can analyze it with with certainty and that you understand what what results you get from it rather than just drawing inferences where where you see them rather than where they are statistically robust post game like we'll, we'll 
get the data out and then the, the story we tell with it is almost completely up to us. If if we weren't clued in with, with statistics or clued in with how to analyze it, that story could be a load of rubbish and send us up the wrong path. But it, it's a minefield, to be honest. Um, like mm. Data is very kind of fashionable at the moment. And GPS, for example, you can have 200 metrics come out of your, your match. So what metrics you pick and what you, you take from them is, is entirely up to you. And that's where research can come in. You might be able to read a research paper that's done something and has argued uh, the case for one particular metric or another or one one way of analyzing it or another and then you can start to build your context with that but as, as i said earlier there's no paper that you'll read and it'll tell you the recipe uh, of how to do it you just need to make sure that you read enough to, to have an opinion for yourself and then maybe start to follow those authors or those practitioners who have an opinion that sits sits well with you and then you can engage with them on twitter or engage with them on linkedin or whatever and, and and, and start to build more of a picture. This sounds really cliche, but it's, it's a real journey, I find, in terms of developing an understanding. And so when I said that I cringe, when I think back to how I was, it was, I would take one data point and think I knew it all. And now it's just like this kind of pit of despair of realizing how little you do know. I don't know if you're aware of the Dunning-Kruger effect. And what was it again? Well, the Dunning-Kruger is basically the it's like a timeline of what your your knowledge base is compared to how confident you are with it. So kind of a slope that goes rapidly up when you first start learning something, and they call that the like peak of Mount Stupid. And it quickly <laughs> declines down to into the pit of despair, and then basically the, the rest of your time you're just trying to fight your way back up this kind of fairly shallow slope towards some level of expertise. But I just find that the more you know about something, the more you realise there's lots more people you know a hell of a lot more and you you know less than you think i had the exposure to it a bit more during my undergraduate degree when like that you listen to like a podcast or you do this bit of research and all of a sudden or even at the best example i can give is a dissertation so i remember doing my thesis in a reactive agility at the time and i thought i was the dog's learning all about this stuff with everything to do with reactive agility but then a couple of years later, I'm now doing my master's degree. Looking back into it, I've only scratched the surface with my 10,000 word thesis. To specify the data, then the testing of the data back to you guys, what are the main KPIs that you would look for during match day? Okay, well, so in terms of like the match day output, so like the, the biggest KPI is obviously how many goals we've scored. And how many <laughs> sure, <goals> yeah. <laughs> that would be a key one, I suppose. <laughs> I joke. But um, like for, for some people, um, that can be more important. So the score doesn't matter. As long as you've, you've run this distance or that distance, then it's a win. I think sometimes we get lost, as I was saying, we get lost in all this data because the biggest thing is, did we win or lose? Can I ask um, you actually, just on that one, I don't mean to interrupt you, but does that depend on the coaching philosophy as well of the head coach? Oh, yeah, massively. It, it depends on the, the coaching philosophy of the head coach. It depends on, the, say, the players sometimes. It can depend on so many different things at different times. Yeah, obviously, if you're in a football team, winning is is the main thing. And I'm sure there's no coaches, head coaches that will say, no, I'd rather they all ran a bit more. Back to your question, really. So so the match output is is certainly affected by lots of contextual factors that are important or aren't important. So obviously, the player's position will affect it. The tactics will affect it. The opposition will affect it. The weather, the time of the season a ton of different things will affect it. So if you pin all your kind of focus on one thing and, and see that as good or bad or have a, call it a KPI, then I think you're probably going a little bit astray. Now you might be looking for certain things. You might want to track certain things to to gauge whether a player's run more than the normal. So you can then affect their recovery the next day or kind of recommend that they do certain things the next day. Some people will kind of really go hard on it and say, right, we've, we've done this, so that's good or bad. But I'm really remiss to to say that we'd have a KPI because um, between kind of Owen and myself, we we really don't want to go kind of too data driven. We want to be data led in terms of it helps us make some decisions, but it doesn't drive our processes. If you wanted like a more of a clean answer, then I'd say the things that we're looking at is that total distance, just because that's a, a fairly stable, reliable metric of, of volume. And I could talk about the reliability in a second if you like. Sure. And then then we might look at something like high speed running because that kind of really ties in with the way our manager wants to play. It, it kind of does define our positions quite well, and it probably does uh, affect like, the player's recovery the next two or three days after a game. So if, if a player suddenly did twice as much high-speed running, you, you'd probably guess that they're going to need something to help their recovery, whether that's just you're telling them that and then so they eat a bit better, sleep a bit more, have a bit more of a stretch, or if you're actually putting an intervention in place, it, it's kind of that that's all down to 
what's happening at the time. To go full circle, actually, with that, you mentioned the intervention. That's where the research will come into it, I suppose. So, like, if 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 this particular intervention will work for this particular player, whether it's a whether it's a placebo effect or not, or if it actually has worked in that population, that's where that research can come into it. I imagine would it? Yeah. So, so you look up the research. So to try and make it a bit bit more of a a kind of specific example rather than me kind of rambling too much high speed running so running over a certain speed threshold has been linked to high injury rates so if someone does way more high speed running than they're used to or they're trained for there's a hypothesis that that might lead to some like a heightened risk of injury once you've seen that you might say okay what are the mechanisms of high speed running so you might look at some research on sprint mechanics say and say okay the hamstrings are working a lot harder during high speed running than they are in slower running mm-hmm. Then you might look at another research paper and say, what intervention can I put in place that will help the hamstring recover? So you might offer the player some extra protein, say, to help muscular recovery, or you might offer the player a, an ice bath the next day to facilitate extra recovery. But then you've got to look at the context of that. You might have ample time to recover, so you might actually want the player to get the adaptation. So you might say, yeah, we won't have an ice bath because the adaptation, we're not going to train for a few days. There might be a scheduled couple of days off. Having them sit through that adaptation is, is probably a good thing they'll get fitter that's essentially what fitness is it's the adaptation so you can certainly use the research to kind of guide your practice but then you 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 have always got to see the context behind what you're doing um which i know i've, I've like said a few times that's probably the, the biggest thing like everything depends and it depends on the context which is super super fluffy um, and it's annoying when that's the answer but that typically is and when you were relaying this data back to the athletes how do you go about presenting it? Is there a particular color coding that you'd use or do you just specific, specify this numerical value and it, anything above or below that is, you know, that deems where the athlete will be as far as recovery is concerned? Again, like it depends. Uh, so we've got a fairly standard way of just presenting the data just in a like a visually pleasing format. What do you guys use for your players? To be honest, I don't know because I haven't asked every single one of them. I've, I've probably got way too much information on the report I send out. If I asked them, they'd probably just want to know like high speed running is the in vogue metric at the moment. So they'd probably want to know what their high speed running was. So I could probably just get a piece of paper and write it on it and give it to them and they'd be happy. Um, but as it is, like our report will have a kind of a bar chart or a column chart, I should say, or have their high speed running presented. Then it'll have what their mean is for the season with confidence intervals so that they can kind of understand if, if it's a common amount of high speed running or if it's really atypical for them in their position. With that, they'll see what, everyone else in the team did which again is fraught with contextual kind of difficulty because if, if a, a, a wide player who is normally exposed to a lot of high speed running is comparing themselves to a, a center half who normally isn't I wouldn't want them to think I've had a better game or given more effort because I've produced more high speed runs typically that's that's as, as far as we'd go I almost want to protect the players from the data because what one because it's probably pretty boring for people that aren't into it but I feel like our all our processes should happen beneath the surface and if if we were asked to explain for whatever reason we could kind of justify what we're doing but I feel like the players should just concentrate on their football leave like the the nerdy stuff to the nerds in the office at the back um they can focus on their game rather than worrying about how many meters here or how many meters there obviously we want them just to to work hard to recover well um, but beyond that we should be worrying about how much we set them or how much they did in a game whether that was good bad or whatever so yeah, so we do try and protect them a little bit from that. You do hear these stories in the media about athletes who are very data, I suppose, driven or data led. Like the, uh, and even on a more home ground here, one of the guests I had on was talking about the data to do with one of the GAA teams that we have over here, the national sport in Ireland. And he was saying that in the in particular training sessions, the athletes would nearly compete against each other to try and get better data in comparison to one another, as if it was a context. Whereas the, the real context of the situation is how that applies into a game setting and then ultimately trying to win that game the best way you possibly can. And this is, again, full circle into what you were saying before, I'm pretty sure, about giving the data some context, giving the data a story, that you're not leading the athlete down the wrong the wrong route as far as ex- explaining the data is concerned, but you're trying to explain it in a way that's mo- that's very simple, very easy to understand, but also very productive. They, they know where they stand, they know what they need to work on, but also you're not giving them the information that they don't need to know because at the end of the day you're wasting everyone's time i imagine by doing stuff like that yeah that, that's it and uh, like you've hit the nail on the head it's what, what they need to work on is probably one of the main things of so whatever data we're collecting we're, we're trying to find find those kind of small areas that we think could be improved 
and then we can work on those uh, rather than just data dumping on them and showing them everything that they've ever done because uh, it just it means nothing. Um, we need to say, look, here's what your position would typically do. Um, here's what happens in the biggest games. Here's what your average is. If it, let's say it's below, you probably need to work a bit harder. You probably need to, to find those meters. Now, why aren't those meters coming? Is it because there's a kind of tactical component to that? In which case we might speak to the performance analyst and say, like, how was the player playing and, and try and get some context there? Or the player might just say, I was tired or, or whatever. But you need to find that context and then work from there. Uh, there's no point in me just saying, right, you didn't do enough meters in this game, so we're going to go make up those meters outside because that might just put the player off and kind of you lose buy-in and lose trust maybe and you end up just flogging a player for the sake of it. And it's this kind of a, I'd prefer a much more nuanced approach where you're looking at lots of different streams and trying to put them together to, as I say, to tell that story and to encourage a player to, to work harder basically and, and trust that what you're asking them to do is the right thing. Mm, that's yeah, that's very true. Not just doing it for the sake of it and possibly leading them leading them down the wrong path. On average, then, how do you find that the, the players and the team respond to the data? Do they do they focus more on the data, as you said, in in some cases, or do the majority of them tend to focus on playing football at the end of the day? It's, I think it's a bit from both. There's some who I think couldn't care less. Like they've probably never had a conversation with me about it in their, the whole time here. There's others that are really, really like to know, really like to know what they've done. It's kind of a mixed bag. It's I wouldn't say there's a majority one way or the other. The times where it becomes maybe a bit more important is like during rehab. So if a player's rehabilitating, they'd want to know what they've done in a session, what they need to be doing, what their typical values are for a training week or a, a match day. So they can work towards that and see how far away they are from kind of full fitness, so to speak. I think it's important to, to understand that what the player wants is the most important thing. And you've just got to make sure that you you help them in, in doing that. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. To, we, we've kind of addressed the conditioning aspect of the role, really, and the data that comes along with that on the pitch and the metrics that you mentioned there. To go more into the strength aspect of the title, then, when it comes to the gym, what kind of data metrics are you looking for? Or do you look for any data metrics when it comes to training in the gym at all? So like the, the, main, the, the main data points that you'd, you'd go for initially would be during testing. So you'd want to have some kind of battery of tests where you can pick out what the, like, what the needs are of the athlete, test in an appropriate way to kind of discover if they can match those needs or if they're lower than those needs, and then build their program around that. Then you might test them kind of semi-frequently throughout the season to see if your interventions are working or not, or you might test them in other ways to, to find out whether they're fatigued or not. But you can take an approach where you have tons and tons of data or, or as little as you want. You probably want to sit somewhere in the middle to be a good practitioner, I'd say. Um, you don't want too much because you don't want to get lost in it. And that's definitely something I've been guilty of in the past. Or but then you definitely don't want to go in blind because if you're just relying on your coaching eye or relying on intuition, you, you probably get lost somewhere. But 25 athletes to deal with, you're not going to be able to remember everything. If you want more specifics with Arsenal, we would do some kind of kind of power test, some kind of strength test, some kind of like local endurance or capacity test on particular muscles. Might do some kind of reactive strength test. Uh, so you're basically picking out qualities that that you believe or that you've you've read through research will be important for an elite footballer and then go from there coming full circle back to the initial point of the conversation was every step of the way you're, you're going to be guided by research or guided by what you've done in the past or people that you've spoken with to understand what's a good test or what's a bad test or to put it more specifically what's an appropriate or what's an inappropriate test and then you just go from there I think this ties in nicely to the point you may have wanted to mention about reliability at some stage does that did that have to do with the tests that you're using specifically uh, it can do, yeah. So, like the, the reliability point with something like high speed running was if you so reliability will be how easily repeatable a, a certain test is. And if, you, if you're assuming that your match is a test, so they're getting tested once a week for how far they can run during a game, something like high speed running is for some positions has quite a high or low level of reliability, however you look at it. So, that means that if, if it's not that reliable, it will change week to week just naturally. So, for example, if, if a measure of reliability is something called the coefficient of variation. So if something has a high coefficient of variation, naturally it will change each time you test. So if it's a 30% coefficient of variation, you can expect a 30% change every time you test. So if you're testing in the gym for something that you want to be precise, so you can get a, a really good understanding of a, of a of quality, for example, reactive strength, the better tests are the ones with better reliability. If, for example, we have a really unreliable test, 
and it can change by 10% every time you test, then you're going to need to improve that athlete's capabilities by more than 10% to, to, to know that it's an actual change and not just noise. In fact, you have, you have to change it by 20% because you might be getting noise the other way as well, which is, uh, again, it's another kind of area of research you can read up on, which is what are the best ways to quantify smallest worthwhile change, so the smallest amount of change in a particular test that you would deem worthwhile for performance. And that can be based on reliability or it can be based just upon how much is worth it to change. So if you're a 100-meter runner, one hundredth of a second could be the difference between gold and silver, um, whereas in other sports it, it may not matter. So if a marathon runner is going to do a, a six-month intervention to get a one-hundredth of a second difference in their time, it's probably not going to separate them too much in, in a marathon race. So lots of different factors to take in, take on board. Um, and like reliability is like one of the cornerstones of statistics that probably should be heavily taught in undergraduate degrees. So I'll go back to that question you said earlier. To take a, a step away from the statistics, because I'm sure for anyone that I suppose like the average Joe Soap listening to this, their, their heads might be hurting at this stage now, Fran, and, and rightly so. Like, I mean, I, I'm in this, I'm in the master's degree at the moment. My head hurts even thinking about it sometimes. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll empathize with the listeners on this one. I wanted to go and delve into the topic more of, I want to make a specific to Arsenal, but the returning to play protocol that you guys may have had. Um, did you guys have that now after COVID when you guys were coming back into training? Yes, with, with COVID, we were very much dictated to by regulations. So uh, regulations around the training ground or around contact with players or just government-based regulations on whether you can be outside or not, or whether you can be in, uh, in, in closed spaces with people. So a lot of our protocols were based on that um, rather than the kind of protocols that I'd put in place for someone who just hasn't trained for, say, six months. Um, so, so with our players, the big focus when we didn't have contact with them was just to keep them moving, so to keep, keep them kind of ticking over. So we'd, we'd set a lot of home-based stuff where they would be loading tissues in ways that we felt were important for them as footballers and important to, to keep ticking over. And then basically when we started back up and we had access to, to groups, we could then pick up from where we left off and we felt that the, the best strategy would be to let them regress as little as possible. If we let them just sit at home on the sofa for six months or 12 months, whatever it was going to be, there would have been a, a big kind of decrement in their performance output. So we would have had to start from a very kind of low place you know, in terms of building them back up. Because if, if we were to build them up too quickly, that's where you run the risk of overloading systems and getting injuries and just basically pushing someone to a point that they're not comfortable with. At the end of the day with COVID and the gym is reopening back up, which I know has obviously just happened this week in the UK, as far as I know. And then in in, our, in Ireland, it's due to be back on June the 7th. I want to go, I want to specify the athlete in this position. What would you recommend as far as return to play is concerned? The first point would be to start slowly, depending on how much you've been doing. So if, if you're an endurance athlete and you're you're a 5k runner and you've had the chance to to run daily or, or weekly or whatever, then you're probably fine because you've, you've been doing what you do. So to, to build that back up um, is, is probably a fairly simple task. But if you've not been exposed to the stresses that you plan to expose yourself to in the gym, then you really want to start slowly. So park your ego. Don't worry about lifting what you lifted before. Just focus on the kind of movement quality and focus on feeling good and enjoying being in that space again. In S&T, S&C talk, you'd have something called a general prep phase, which would just be getting the body, getting the mind used to, to frequent exercise. So you want to build up the tolerance in certain tissues to load. You want to build up your... Your movement patterns, again, if they're kind of complicated movement patterns, you want to just build up your, your mental kind of robustness in terms of dealing with fatigue. Uh, so just spending a bit of time being back in the environment of, of stress, which is, is what a gym is, is going to be key. Beyond that, the, the way you progress is going to be down to how your body responds, which is obviously affected by a ton of things, age, training history, nutrition. But you, you'd want to then start building back towards whatever your goal is in an, in an appropriate manner. Um, and obviously, that there's a million different ways of doing that. After the general prep phase of working in the gym or working on the pitch, then what would be the next step that you'd recommend? Generally, you'd go from general to specific. What that specific is, is entirely dependent on what you want to do, where, where you want your fitness to take you. So uh, like the global term fitness is, is just broad. It doesn't really tell you anything other than you can do something. So if I want to be the world's best 
sofa sitter. I just need to sit on the sofa and then I'm, I'm fit <laughs> to, to sit on a sofa. So like one of the, the main things, and this is something I really stress with people in the gym when I worked in there, is you have to have a goal. So just being fitter typically for me wasn't a good enough goal because fitness can, can manifest itself as an ability to run, an ability to swim or lift weights or, or have low body fat or big muscles or whatever. Each has a different path to get there. So you really need to define that end goal. So if you're in the gym and you're doing some general work, which might just be a bit of everything, just getting used to it, and then you want to kind of progress beyond that, then it's just becoming more and more specific in what you're doing. And as I said, that specificity will be entirely dependent on where you want to go. If, if where you want to go is be better at squatting, to, to lift as much as you can, then you would start to work towards the strength end of things and maybe use heavier weights, lower reps, uh, a lower volume and, and, and work towards that. But as I say, there's, there's no kind of one size fits all. There's no recipe book that will say, this is what you would do. It's just, it's just a matter of defining your goal and making sure you, you test yourself at some point to find out whether what you're doing is working to get you towards that goal. I, had a, I have a question that popped into my head there. I want to see what you think about this. Opinions on testing, should it be done during the during the season? Now, during the season specifically, I'm not talking about off-season or post-season, but yeah. during the season, in your opinion, should testing be done? Because there is an argument out there to say that testing shouldn't be done because it's replacing or taking the time away from training demands. What would be your thoughts on that? Um, it's, it's a good question. It's something that my colleagues and I have, have kind of spoken about a lot in, in the sense that, yes, it should, the more you can understand over your athlete status or your client status, the better. Um, but yeah, if you're in season, if you're in a competitive season, you might not have coaches that want you to test because it is a stress. It is, it is taking time away from say tactical development. So I think the key is picking your windows when you can test. So there might be the odd day where you can do a test or two and, and using that information. But then I think like, the biggest one is trying to embed your testing within your training. If it's a good test, if it's an applicable test, it should kind of mirror what you're doing in training to, to a certain extent. So, for example, if speed is one of your KPIs, um, which it certainly is for, for football, you don't necessarily have to have a speed testing day where you say, right, we're going to go and test your speed and, and make it very formal. You can just have your timing gates out or, or have some method of, of timing the different splits and do it as part of your warm-up where you've got a kind of a speed theme day, which in football you tend to have one once a week and get your, your data from that. So it's it's not going to be the most robust data. And if you try to publish it, it's, it's going to be fraught with things that people would pick apart if it was to go to peer review, i.e. if you were doing like a speed improving intervention people would want you to have the same surface the same air temperature the same kind of wind speed all these different things to make sure the test was as as reliable as possible but if you're not bothered about that i.e., you're not going to publish it and you just want to get a, an idea of where your athletes are at then you just kind of embed it in your testing and sorry embed it in your training and, and make sure you, you understand the, the factors that might affect your results mm-hmm. you know, so not take it all as gospel not think that you've produced the best program ever because your athletes run faster when in fact it was just windier that day or they were just happier that day or, or, or whatever. That is a danger I found with testing as well is that every single day an individual can react to the intervention differently. That all ties into the reliability of things. So participants aren't machines, we're all human. So we're all subject to different kind of variations in our mood and, and how we feel affects what we can produce physically. So the job for a good practitioner, again, we're going full circle, this is brilliant, is that you've got to kind of dig the signal out of the noise and, and tell the story from that signal. And in, uh, in sports science nowadays, there's a hell of a lot of noise and there's a hell of a lot of signals that you can pick up. So it's, it's important to, to find the right ones. Fran, I have to say that was uh, that was really, really interesting. Even for me, there's a lot of stuff there for me to hear about everything that goes on behind the scenes. And I know it was from a very general sense, but it does help people an awful lot understand what, the amount of work it's not just a case if you go into a gym and you instruct someone you pick up that bar you put it down or you pick up that dumbbell and put it down there's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes than meets the eye and the one thing about the strength and conditioning coaches i found is that it's not as well documented in the media as your average head coach that would be in talking about how the team are training or how you know this particular player is feeling with you guys it's a very specific role but as you said you have to be on the side of both data led um, as opposed to data driven but then the other side of it being, you have to just be a really good coach as well. You have to be very interpersonal, deal with the players, socialize with them on a daily basis. And I think the big thing as well, and I'm taking this away from my current course, is keep each athlete as an individual. 
don't just treat them as they're all the same as each other just because they're elite footballers. Every every individual is an individual for their own reason. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And that's probably one of the biggest problems with research, say, is it groups together a, a large or small number of participants and it says, here is the result. And all you've got is the mean. And you're comparing means from one group to another. When you're in any kind of environment, you're not working with means, you're working with individuals that will respond differently and, and just have different preferences. So the biggest thing is just getting to know who you're working with and empathizing with them, understanding them, communicating well with them. I know that's the stuff that Owen spoke about. One of our kind of pillars of, of our model was communication. That's probably the biggest side of it, really. It's so little is what test you choose. It's, that, that's the kind of the, the sexy things that people will put online. It's like, oh, you've got to do this test. It gets these results. It looks great. You can make these graphs. These graphs look brilliant. 90% of it for me is just being a good person, understanding your athlete and figuring out what they need and when research drives that. But ultimately what drives the, the bigger part of it is just your, your, your character really kind of sounds corny, but that, that's, that's where it is for me. It's about being a good people person and, and letting the rest almost take care of itself as long as you've got kind of an eye on the research and, and you're, you're being evidence-based to a degree. Um, but there's, there's not going to be a research paper out there that says, how should I if I'm coaching you in the gym, here's a research paper that says Fran should coach Lawrence in the gym X or Y way. That will get, give the best result. There's nothing out there that's going to tell you to do that. Brilliant summary of the whole episode, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to go into the last portion of the show, uh, Fran, I have uh, one question here. Actually, two questions now because of me. <laughs> uh, the first the, the first question I wanted to ask you was from me. So the question being, how does how is your training going at the moment being a strength and conditioning coach as a, of a high-performance team? My personal training, mm. terribly. Ter- <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever get time to train during the week in your job? Uh, yeah, yeah. there's plenty of time. And like the, the old adage is you can make the time. So if you really want to do it, you can make the time. Um, but now I've just found I'm, I'm just feeling quite old. So <laughs> I, I, I seem to, whatever I do at the moment, whatever training I do, I seem to get injured. Right. Um, okay. Probably really ties into the kind of have a general prep phase because I just try and pick up where I was and yeah. Um, I injured I injured myself walking the other day. I was just walking and I felt something tighten up. I'm like, <laughs> what's going on? Um, in my training's going. I'd say out of ten, I'd give it a two because <laughs> I can do something. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's good. Yeah, fair, <laughs> fair enough. You have to give me an inside scoop. How is Owen getting on with his training? Oh, he's even worse. Oh, he's really? <laughs> Brilliant. No, no, he's doing. He's doing well. He's um, he is making the time for it. It's tough because when there was no COVID, you you turn up to the facility at Arsenal, which is unbelievable, and you can turn up a, an hour or two before work, and you can get in this gym that's just got anything you want to use in there, and you can have a fantastic training session and kind of feel good about the day and, and go from there. But now with with COVID kind of the gym we've got set up is in a like a, a dome. So it's like a an indoor football pitch, but just like a, a covering. So it's through the winter, it's freezing. So you'd be training in kind of gloves, a coat and a hat mm. because the bars and the weights were just, were frozen. So I think everyone struggled with that. Everyone struggled to deal with not having the creature comforts of a air-conditioned gym with, with nice kit. Now it's kind of, we're back to it where we're just lifting weights, trying to do the basics. Owen's doing better than most of us. I'd, I'd say that he's, he's still keeping it ticking over for sure. Fair play to him. Has he gotten his haircut recently, actually? I'd say he's been dying to get one of them. Yeah, I think he has. I think he's got a trim. Oh, well then. Hey, he's happy yeah, out there. Hairdressers and stuff are open over here now. So That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Fair play. The last question I wanted to ask you then before I leave you, Fran, is what was your DJ name when you used to scratch a Dex back in the day? <laughs> so whoever's fed you this information has given you wrong information. For the so wrong I, information. Yeah, I never used to DJ. I'd I'd do the MCing, so I'd be on the mic. So I would I'd be frantic MC. So I would <laughs> Brilliant. I'd pick up the mic and I would just shout just random rubbish down the mic. <laughs> It'd be my friends at the DJ. Um, so it's, yeah, it's quite embarrassing. That's just the time of my life that I'd rather not talk about. Thanks. <laughs> I suppose that answers the next question. Can you give us a little teaser? Oh, yeah, not a chance. <laughs> not. I'm going to give you one guess. Who do you think gave you that information? That's got to be Owen, isn't oh, 100%. it? 100%. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Everything I said about his training, it's a lie. He's, he's 
He's fat and he's old. <laughs> Brilliant. I know. I know you have the the, the most utmost respect for him. So that's that's a super way to finish the episode. Fran, thanks again for hopping on. Really appreciate your time. Uh, from the moment that we're talking, or at the moment that we're talking, you're currently in a hotel room with a fixture against Everton tomorrow for a champion, a place in the Champions League. Yes. Yeah. Um, not mathematically, but if we win tomorrow, then there needs to be a, a, a series of very freak results for us not to finish third. Um, so yeah, it's a big game tomorrow. Every game's big, but tomorrow's got that little bit of extra importance, which is nice. Brilliant. Um, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, and to the listeners, go back and check out the results now, because by the time this is released, now Arsenal may or not be may or may not be in the Champions League next year. So fingers crossed, oh. he's qualify, and best of luck. And thanks again for hopping on. Right, thanks a lot. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Thanks again to Fran for giving some of his precious time to record that and hopefully providing you guys with some information on what coaches should look out for when it comes to identifying good quality research. The topic of identifying good scientific research can be a slightly boring one at times, I'll admit, but when you have a good understanding of it, this might make the difference between being a good coach or taking the next step up. Also, I'm sure the information that Fran provided as far as returning back to the gym is concerned will come in quite handy, so I hope you guys take away that information, and as always, take away at least one message from each episode. And now, guys, for my special announcement. The next episode of the LB Performance Podcast will unfortunately be my last for now. As college is getting a little bit busier, I want to make sure that I give it my best shot in getting a good end result, and I don't want to be regretting anything by the end of the course as well as the shoulda, woulda, couldas. But this isn't the end of the podcast, just a temporary pause. I will look at continuing on season two when I am finished with my degree, so next week will be my last episode for now. Up until this point, I've had weekly guests on, providing all of us information on health and wellness, self-development, business development, and athlete performance. However, on next week's episode, for any of you aspiring performers out there, I'll be speaking to a two-time Eurovision representative in light of the song contest that will be returning to our screens in a couple of weeks' time. Fun fact, this performer is also my cousin. All will be revealed on my Instagram page next week. Lastly, do get in touch with Fran Silver. Do let him know how he got on during this week's recording. I thought he did very, very well personally, but I'm sure he'd appreciate the feedback and constructive criticism for a lot of the listeners as well. Thanks again to Fran. Thanks again for listening. And I'll chat to you guys on next week's temporary finale. Bye bye.